Catherine Lofton and Catherine Kramer. Two Catherines, two convocation speakers, two very different talks. We could take it slowly, or we could get insane. No one ever got anywhere by playing it safe. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On this week's show, we'll talk with Catherine Lofton, professor of religious studies at Yale University, about pop culture and religion, including a deep dive into the religion of Kanye West and Bob Dylan. And Kathy Kramer, professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, about the politics of resentment among rural voters in Wisconsin. This week's show is coming up next after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Catherine Lofton studies pop culture from the lens of religion. She believes that even in a purportedly secular society, there are religious elements to many of our behaviors, especially relating to the decisions we make about what to consume. Her latest book is titled Consuming Religion. I was curious about her own upbringing and religious influence. Um, My work leads me to answer that question in in an intense way. And anyone listening wants a simple answer, a genealogical answer, a denominational answer. And so uh, the simplest way I could answer that is my parents were both members of the Democratic Socialists of America, the chapter in Milwaukee. And as you maybe know, Milwaukee has a pretty prominent socialist history, and my parents were pretty passionate political thinkers and actors. They ultimately withdrew from regular participation and presence in that world, um, and now do not participate in, in in that party or in those local politics. But when I was a kid, um, that defined everything that we thought and did. So I could tell you what my parents would think about the wood that this table is made out of, that art on the wall, the outfit that I'm wearing, what I ate today, how I got to the airport, that I used a plane, so that there was this really intense materialist critique of everything. My sister once bought a bunch of clothes when she was in middle school because she babysat, and the clothes were covered with this brand named Swatch, which was very hip in the early 90s, whenever she bought these. She brought them home, and my father cut out the word swatch from this entire jogger outfit, and um, maybe making the outfit totally unwearable, but it was a statement about our relationship to Brandt. So what I said later on when I was in graduate school was that I was raised in a secular orthodoxy, meaning that there was ideas about the good, but they were precisely written against denominational and church-oriented religion. But I would argue, and indeed a lot of my work has been about how much of secular life has a lot of rules, has a lot of social groups, has a lot of distinctions they like to make. Even people who don't belong to the chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Right. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty all-encompassing religion, if yeah. you want to call it that, <laughs> yeah. growing up in that. Uh, wow, that's that's crazy. I remember one time my mom uh, threw away one of my T-shirts, but it was just because it was old and ratty. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's its, own, that's its own kind of discernment, so that in my house you would keep the rattiness to try to prove your relationship to poverty, but another family, maybe with a different relationship to wealth or a different relationship to class, would say, oh, no, we want you to look a certain kind of upright. And I'm really interested in those decisions uh-huh. um, because it doesn't necessarily assume that one family does or doesn't have money. It's what you want to represent about health, wealth, formality, civility. And so it was very important to my parents that we don't look um, 
above the working class and they were themselves born to poor families but even once they no longer were that poor they still wanted to seem of the proletariat uh -huh. and that's an aesthetic I think we see a lot of pop stars trying to play around with and rock stars where they want to act as if they still look to be of the people even though we know they live in Beverly Hills so um so yeah that aesthetic of the civility became a big part of what I got interested in the study of religion yeah yeah so I guess some of us kind of grow up with um a more narrow definition of religion, um, you know, whether it's strictly worshiping a god or, or whatever. But when did you start to think of religion as more than just that, more than worshiping gods and more about, you know, kind of these other things that these rules that maybe are secular but govern how we live our lives? There are two things that, that demonstrate my own relationship what, to what you said, which is absolutely true, that most people think of religion as uh, a description of a relationship between human being and God. And um, one thing is the study of religion that I'm a part of, and that there's a great department of religious studies here at Grinnell, and there's a scholar here, Tyler Roberts, who's wrote an incredible book about this very question about the study of religion and how much that very definition of a religion about an idea of God is a historical idea. It's not throughout history. We've had a lot of different ideas about what organized people around different rituals and activities and identities. Um, and that the idea of a singular God and your belief in that God is actually, a, a, in his language, a kind of post-Reformation idea of religion. But even if I wasn't interested, as I deeply am in that nerdy, when does that word get that idea? Because I study religion in America, that was my historical and geographic interest, we have to acknowledge that the sociology of religion has changed so much that, A, the question of whether or not Americans were going to churches has been actually a really disputed one historically. We know now that Americans are less and less saying, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a conservative Jew. They're likely to say, I'm a Christian, I'm Jewish, but people are moving away from very denominational identity that they associate with a particular kind of church or synagogue attendance. That doesn't mean that people have less identities or things that they aren't committed to, but as we move away from a church-bound idea of what religious practice looks like, I start getting interested more and more in the things that people are really invested in, the things they keep doing repeatedly, and the moments when they say, I agree with another group that I'm with those people and not those people. So um, I'm giving this talk on Thursday about Kanye West. Kanye talks all the live long day about what he is and isn't. And as he does that, he raises names of groups. Sometimes he says that he should be seen as white. Sometimes he says he should be seen as black. Sometimes he says he's a Christian. Sometimes he says he's a free thinker who's an atheist. But he's constantly invoking groups to talk about how, in his mind, we wrongly organize ourselves through social identity. I'm interested in all of it. I mentioned those social identities he's talking about, the groups that put Black Lives Matter and placards over their heads, and Kanye West standing back saying, no, not me, and all the people at his concert throwing their hands in the air when he's singing Famous. So that's the forms of sociability where people gather to agree on something, and then they dissolve saying, I'm alone. To me, that's the study of American religion. Hmm. Yeah. I guess I don't have any statistics about um, people identifying with a certain religion and how strongly, historically, in America they have, but it seems like as as they fade away from, you know, identifying as a particular domination, then the, the void has been kind of filled with some of these pop culture kind of things. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. People who are listening can ask themselves if they're not going to something called church and they don't have something in their life that's an ident a social identity that's outside of themselves, how is their time spent? 
So some people are listening and saying, oh, I don't have any of that. I'm a free person. But then I would just want a clear record of how you're spending your days. And I might see in your Angry Birds relationship, you know, some aspects of your commitments. They might not be ones you feel great about as moral choices, but that might tell us a lot about what your social life is like. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Tyler Roberts, who I actually had as a professor when oh, I was here. Cool. I was going to talk about him already, so it's just convenient that you brought him up. So one of my favorite classes here at Grinnell was one that he taught. It was called Religion, Philosophy, and the Good Life. Mm. And we talked about in one of the first classes the claim, I believe it was from David Foster Wallace's famous commencement speech, This is Water, that everyone worships something, whether it's a, a god, money, or success. We all worship something. Does that idea resonate with you? Oh, it absolutely resonates. And um, I love that commencement address, um, even as we, and, and this is something I'm really very interested in right now, is I was a huge David Foster Wallace person in college. And I think if you had list, if I, if you looked at the way my life was being practiced, you might say one of the things I worshiped was David Foster Wallace. Uh, I hung out with the kind of people who really liked him, who liked those voluminous footnotes, who liked the kind of absurd inner monologue that drives so much of his fiction. And now we live in a time where his own story is getting exhumed and talked about again. I think we all probably thought he wasn't the greatest guy, but he was so brilliant and said things that made you really think about your own loneliness and your sense of isolation. And now in this era of Me Too, we're asking, well, what does it mean that he also might have been? And you know, given that I think Mary Carr is a fairly believable speaker, definitely was an abusive person. That's where I think the study of religion gives us so many resources to talk about how the good and the bad are always commingled in moments of worship, and that the very acts of worship sometimes dissolve somebody's humanity, so that I flattened him. I maybe also didn't read his work as well as I should have. But I thought in that commencement address, there's a stunning moment where he talks about being at the checkout line and the checkout person and the kind of the various strong feelings you have as you're standing in that checkout line. And it's such a poignant moment that depicts him in a moment of great, one could say, um, vulnerability and depravity, the ways in which one has strong, ugly feelings at a checkout line, um, that, that I think if we did a better job talking about those feelings, which his work allowed us to do, but we often spend our time, or I spent my time worshiping him, rather than thinking about the moral questions his work offered. So I'm thrilled to know that the work is being taught in this moral context, because then you can start asking these robust questions about, well, what was the good life, given how hard he experienced life to be? Yeah. And what do we choose to worship? Yes. Um, so your talk tonight is titled Consuming Religion, How Ivory Soap, Kim Kardashian, and Goldman Sachs Explain this modern age. <laughs> I laugh at my own title. I'm laughing at my own <laughs> the title. I, I must say the the. I mean, we get a lot of talks coming through here, but your your two talks, the titles for them, stood out to me very strongly as like, wow, immediately I'm going to those talks. Um, so both of your talks here on campus will discuss the world of of pop culture, which can be a crazy, scary place sometimes, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I see like Entertainment Weekly come on tonight after after the local news, my response is usually to shut off the TV before I <laughs> lose my faith in humanity. But you look right there—a practice that exhumes your values, yeah. Ben. That's so great. Yes, <laughs> keep doing that. Commit to that. But you do just the opposite. That's you true. you look at them square in the eye and you analyze them. Why? How? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, I can tell the autobiographical answer, which goes back to being that. Um, nervous white girl who came from a very peculiar childhood and then went to college and felt very overwhelmed by the um, students I was surrounded by and 
I don't know if students here can relate to this, but I, I went to a large public high school in a Midwestern town. Um, you know, my relationship to elite ideas of reading and, you know, just all, all the kind of habits that I discovered when I went to college, other kids had been cultivated. I just kind of arrived sort of wide-eyed, wearing my overalls, kind of confused. And I wasn't a rube, but I wasn't elite in my own sense of myself. And then to discover these various hierarchies, so I would have and do all these kind of performances during the day of trying to act like the smart hipster kid. But then I'd go back to my room at night and I'd just desperately watch the Oprah show or I'd watch <laughs> The Simpsons or I'd binge on Entertainment Tonight and its various cast because it felt like some kind of safety. It felt like a link back to other kinds of friendships and relationships I had where reading People magazine and gossiping about celebrities was something I did with my girlfriends in high school or um, being obsessed about a particularly not cool thing was actually seen also as kind of cool in the world <laughs> I grew up in. Yeah. So it was my way of kind of doing a counterculture to this emerging world of um, McSweeney's and the form of meta literature that was very predominant alongside the emergence of um, kind of alt rock and Seattle sound, which were all things that I also could say I genuinely love Sonic Youth. But Sonic Youth didn't make me feel cozy at night. It made me feel like oh, I am just like Kim at the edge of my madness. And I needed things that also just made me chill out. And the chill out part increasingly became something that when I got to graduate school, I realized that that very soothing could also fall into this language of, you know, the opioid, where it is. Where does the rest end and kind of evasion begin? And I got really interested in that as I was reading theories of cultural, um, kind of cultural mass culture and cultural organization and just thinking about what are the things that organize us into putting our hands in the air. And so why do, why do the Kanye Wests and Kim Kardashians of the world merit your attention as a scholar of religious studies mm. in particular? Well, when I first started working on the Kardashians, a very dear friend of mine at Yale said that I was... Um, working on um, the uh, the cooler Duggars, like that I was looking at this sort of, you know, the, rather than looking at this very extreme, poor Christian family, I was looking, because one thing to say is the Kardashians are very overtly Christian. Their evangelical Christianity is an essential part of their concept of family, their own claims to moral piety. And um, a lot of my work begins with an observation of, of, oh, something that we think should be like this is also like this. So in the case of the Kardashians, how could they think of themselves as espousing family values, which they powerfully do in a world where everyone hated them for being exploitative, materialistic? Um, and so I was interested in that that confluence of the world's resentment and hatred and judgment, of the moral judgment, alongside this claim to family values, which does have a Christian story. But I very quickly moved away from that Christian story and just got very interested in their own language Pretty, if you follow the show, you know they talk a lot about family, family togetherness. That's the ultimate value. What does that mean in this particular era? Uh, and Kanye, too. Kanye is someone who, um, you know, as everyone knows who consumes him, is pretty possessed with his own deification, um, thinking of himself as a supreme god, and also has a strong relationship to a literal story of Christianity. But I obviously am interested in the way he makes himself his our icon of this day and thinks we should be seeing him as a figure equal to Jesus. And he also, by the way, put Steve Jobs equal to Jesus. So he has a sort of interesting iconography that I'm drawn to. Yeah, the religion of Kanye. <laughs> um, what does our worship of celebrity reveal about us as a culture right now, I guess, with the with the celebrities that you study and, and look at? That's such a deep question, Ben, and I don't have a fast answer for it. Um, it is, to me, the, the question of why are particular stories 
ones we can't stop getting more about. Um, a part of the Kardashian story is that I, uh, when I about ten years ago, became a step parent, and one of the ways I bonded with my daughter was by watching the Kardashians with her. And today, uh, I was just telling her about how I was going to talk to Kanye, and she says, "Oh my God, Kanye is so uncool. The Kardashians are so uncool. It's so boring. Like, have you seen it?" So, you know, she's 17 years old. She's done with it. There was an era where that was the most interesting thing imaginable. But when I asked her, "Well, tell me why the show is bad now," and she's like, "Well, nothing happens in the show. Now, the show does have less viewership than it did five years ago, but it still has millions of people watching it." And she's absolutely right. Very little happens. And yet people are watching them eat their salads and get their nails done <laughs> and have another photo shoot and then have some weird skirmish about whether Scott, Court Kardashian's baby daddy, is or is not a good person at that photo shoot. So it's the smallness that we can't turn away from that I tend to think tells us something about what we think should be attended to in our own lives. And I am interested in this historic moment why celebrity smallness, celebrities are just like us, is something we're drawn to. What do you buy at Walgreens? What do you buy at the grocery store? How do you get over the weird awkwardness of the baby daddy? These are not big metaphysical questions, and yet they seem to consume a great deal of reality TV and pop culture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I often have this kind of feeling about people like, you know, whether it's the Kardashians or Donald Trump, just because they're famous, or in this case, the president of the United States, does that mean that every little word that he says really merits our discussion or every little choice that Kanye makes about wearing this kind of shoe or a triple XL white t-shirt that looks really stupid on him? Should we follow <laughs> suit and copy him? Or like, why do we, why do we give so much credence to the little decisions that they make? Um, and is it, is it possible to like rein that in and, and stop that kind of momentum? Yeah. There are historians, um, I have a colleague at, um, Yale called uh, Joe Roach wrote a beautiful book called It, and it's about the history of charisma and, and talent. He does a beautiful, but there's other historians as well, but he does a beautiful job of, of doing a genealogy of where do human beings put their attentions to see the incarnation of power on earth, and he links the end of monarchic rule um, in the West to the emergence of theatrical and charismatic leaders in entertainment culture. Um, now, why do human beings seem to like to turn towards certain incarnations of power? Uh, well, I lean into this guy, Durkheim, who talks a lot about how we need to make rules about what we can and can't do, or else we will cause a lot of trouble with each other. And in order to get people excited about following that rules, you end up making fun rituals that people can do together. Celebrities create uh, a lot of ritualization in order to be famous. Um, depending on the celebrity, it's either a show or an album or a concert going. If you think about it, if you're a fan of Beyonce, there are a lot of ways of organizing your life in order to continue to be attentive to her. If we think about how our figures of governance, so many people don't even know the senators from the state that they live in, um, we don't seem to have the same practices around the acknowledgement and seeing of our democracy. I think as many other people have said, if, if you know Donald Trump has done one good thing, it's led a lot of people to know the names of their senators, know how to call them, know how to think about what their relationship to legislative powers and how legislation works and how juridical processes work. That sort of attention is something that a lot of democratic theorists have been worried we haven't had enough of, that we've been, and that that's one of the reasons why populist dictatorships are so on the rise, that we're less interested in how the system works, which is really what got us psyched about democracy and more interested in these charismatic figures that organize our enthusiasms and distract us from our everyday. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading something about how, you know, a lot of people complain about this, this new generation because they don't have the attention span for, 
for things that are, um, you know, that we deem to be important. That's exactly you know? it. They yes. can spend five hours playing Fortnite, but yes. they're not going to spend five seconds to look up, you know, who their senator is and give them a call because they care about this issue or that issue. That There's so much interesting media ethnography about um, teenagers' relationship to Instagram and Snapchat. Some version of some adult establishment is anxious about the amount of time spent on social media. But if you turn it against, these are all about relational management and impression management and inserting yourself in the social sphere. All that time doing whatever one does on Instagram, liking and making comments becomes a very different practice. It's more like leaving cards on a silver tray and coming back for a visit, albeit in this very highly mediated, incredibly fast way. Now, is that good or bad? I think those are really questions that we should be talking about a lot more. Yeah. What else outside of celebrity do we worship in this country? My colleague uh, Skip Stout wrote a book about um, the 19th century obsession with risk and gambling and how many American fortunes were tied to land speculation. And that's actually a lot of Iowa is settled by a, you know, a series of people getting really excited about buying land and then selling it again to settlers. So settlers, as we all know, did not renounce the first people who organized the topography of this land. So who were those early surveyors? What were they doing? What were their relationship to Native Americans? That's all a fascinating history. But there's no doubt that a concept of property property, um, land ownership, and speculation is really, I think, at the root of a lot of um, American, both anxiety, excitement, interest. I think that's one of the many ways we can talk about our president is his own relationship to land speculation. Real estate speculation is just another version of that. Um, and what was the risk of trying to guess where will people want to be? Where can I sell at a higher price than I bought in order to know that I've organized a little bit of where the bodies are in this very democratic republic? Um, I think that there's you know, a lot about uh, you know, American society that's also pretty wrapped up in believing that choice is something to maximize. And maximizing choice is, I think, something as a lot of sociologists have observed has become a sort of interesting, if dangerous, proposition, whether you know you compare the number of um, ketchup brands that there were 30 years ago to now, or salad dressings in the grocery store, to the, the rise of the Common App and the number of students who apply now to 10 or 12 places versus you know when I would apply to college, you would seem insane if you applied to four or five. So that maximization, I don't want to lose any opportunity. I'm going to be a lot part of seven clubs, not one. Um, what is it to foreclose and to pursue a kind of monogamy of interest? That seems so terrifying, I think. And so I'm interested in the right that the choice is a particular object of obsession. Yeah, that is a supremely interesting theme to me as well. I when I go into the grocery store and I'm, you know, looking for taco shells or like, <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm like, there don't need to be. 50 different types like I just want I just want one <laughs> tell me the one well it's always a hard tie right because on the one hand the democratization of choice usually also means a democratization of person so all those taco shells there's probably a gluten-free one maybe there's a kosher one maybe there's one that's in a flavor that you know a certain culture seems to like more than another culture so on the one hand, choice means there's a population that's interested, and maybe that means more people are a part of the consumer process. But as sociologists, psychologists have pointed out, choice is also really paralyzing. And the question of how we start getting nervous, but should I have done that? What if I'd done that? And then the question of what kind of lives emerge from anxiety that the right decision wasn't made. And this is where people who have written on you know, the history of caprice and the belief in fate. You know, where are Americans now? We're really in a place where you think you can operationalize and strategically manage your life. And if you make the right choices starting in kindergarten, you'll have a maximal adulthood. I mean, there's a lot of American history that would think that was absolutely insanity to believe that.
that. They thought life was much more capricious and it was much harder to predict whether or not your actions had anything to do with the way things ended up. Not to mention there's a lot of religious systems who think that that's extreme narcissism and insanity. So yeah. it's a particular place we live in now. Yeah, it's, oh boy, it's <laughs> a, a topic of much thought in my brain at least. Um, what do you worship outside of, I guess, so it sounds like you have maybe strayed a little bit from your uh, childhood yes. in terms of your parents' uh, <laughs> yes, religion, yeah. if we want to call it that. So uh, what is it, you know, what things in your life do you see yourself as, as worshiping? Well, I worry that if you did a, a study of my life, um, that there would be a brutal reading of um, maintaining the status of my job through an infinite number of emails and managing uh, committees and organizing the micro practices of university life. So I think if you looked at the, the time chart of my day, sometimes I think, is this, is this really how I want to embody what I believe in? Um, which it looks like it's a lot of meetings with a lot of people to try to structure the university I can believe in, but also the one I feel good in. Um, but I think when I'm not being self-loathing and self-deprecating on the question, it's also the hope to really try to democratize these very elite forms of life and um, that the greatest joys in my life have come in being in um, spaces of uh, democratic learning opportunity, whether it's a public high school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or at this very elite university I get to sit now, what's exciting isn't um, you know just merely the magic incantation that I experience when I'm reading a book with a group of people, but also that that group of people is as weird as possible. So how to make weird establishment institutions is a pretty strong commitment of mine, and that's manifest in the friendships that I have and the goals that I pursue at the university I work at, but also the things that I write that I am purposely trying to ask whether uh, departments in the humanities are asking the most salient questions to get the widest array of people to join the work of the humanities, since I think the humanities can often be a very elite practice where you need to know a lot of obscure languages and have relationship to textual traditions that I want to say I think are incredibly important to know and learn about, but feel very foreclosing to some students who don't come with that language preparation or that relationship to the literary traditions that we love so much. So how to make points of access to nerdiness, I guess that's the thing I feel the most committed to. Yeah, I can get behind that. Let's keep it weird. Um, <laughs> I know you're currently working on uh, a study of the religions of Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that's in the works, but what can you tell me about that? Yeah, that's a hard project. I can't decide if I'm going to come to an end of it with it or not. Um, it's The talks that I've given about it um, rotate around two features of his personality I'm pretty interested in. One, um, the ascription to him of prophecy, literary genius, um, just the extreme accolade that is poured upon him. Maybe Nobel one of the climax. Yeah, Nobel Prize. One of the climactic instances. But on the other side, my own impression and surely his own not insignificant labor to tell us I'm kind of an I'm so I'm kind of an unnot nice guy. I'm sworn. Obama famously said about Kanye that he thought Kanye was a genius, but that he was a jackass. And I am very interested in that figure, and and because there's a lot I think about charismatic religious leadership in which they are beloved and admired. I think Brigham Young was not a jackass. I do think Joseph Smith is somebody who, upon human 
biographical telling, was kind of an obnoxious guy to be that's the founder of the LDS church. Um, so I think in order to be a founder of a thing, you often are kind of difficult and not easy for everyone. You might be really appealing. So Bob Dylan, by all accounts, not the nicest human person, sort of difficult to get along, weird with his family, um, but someone we can't stop talking about the way his work gives us this powerful feeling. So I have a chapter about the way in which I am unconvinced that he was born again as a Christian. I think he actually was just really psyched about gospel music and felt it was a performance that the world would be interested in. Um, I have a piece about the lies he told when he moved to Greenwich Village about his own origin. He said he had multiple different kinds of father, different sorts of origin stories. Um, and I have another piece I'm working on about a group of guys who are passionate about Kabbalah, who study his lyrics to find the truth of the ages, and how they do that in part to try to understand their own moral relationship to his work. So I'm interested in audience response. I'm interested in his acts of, I think, kind of clever, um, uh, how should I say, humbug. Oh, I look forward to potentially reading about that. Um, you're also working on something, uh, the religious history of American happiness. What's yes, that about? yes, that's, just briefly. Uh, yeah, I, I mean that's. I'm very project. interested in just the 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 insatiability of. Uh, fighting for happiness, thinking about it, but um, and how many religions that we see as um, native to the U.S. or at least as having kind of insurgent traditions really focus a lot of their theology about the good life, cheerful life, rich life, better life, um, but that how much of that betrays just the difficulty and suffering of a lot of American experience. So it's sort of my um, ironic Howard Zinn move to say, you know, the religious history of American happiness is the history of unhappiness. Nice. Um... Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for talking with me and coming to Grinnell um, and, and making sense of this crazy world that we live in. Thanks a lot, Ben. Catherine Lofton is a professor of religious studies at Yale University. Her most recent book is called Consuming Religion. Links to that and her other works are available on our website, grinnell.edu podcast. Switching gears from keeping up with the Kardashians to keeping up with Wisconsin politics, Kathy Kramer spent 10 years traveling around Wisconsin, talking, but mostly listening, to people in the more rural parts of the state. Her research brought her to understand and appreciate the value of really listening to people and their concerns. I sat down to talk and listen to Kathy about her book, The Politics of Resentment, and how her research began. When I started out, I was really interested in social class identity, just uh, how people's sense of where they are in the pecking order of things, how it affects the way they think about and talk about politics. And so I wasn't even looking for a rural versus urban divide. I just, I wanted to invite myself into conversations in a variety of places, because at that point in my career, I knew if I'm interested in how people interpret politics, a really good way to get at that is to listen to them talk to people that they know in the places that they normally hang out in. So what I did was to sample several dozen communities across Wisconsin, thinking that if I sample a, a well-to-do Milwaukee suburb and a small town, lower income place, that likely I'm going to get different conversations with respect to social class. So it had nothing to do with Walker Nothing to do with Trump. Uh -huh. Nothing to do with the rural versus urban divide. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, you know, one of the big themes that emerged from the book was this urban-rural divide, um, kind of this resentment stemming from these geographical identities. Can you paint a picture of what that resentment looked like in sure. the communities where you spent your time? Yeah, sure. So... Uh, I would be inviting myself into conversations in gas stations and diners and such. And here I am, this social scientist driving out from Madison in my uh, Volkswagen. I drive a Prius now, but at the start I was driving a Volkswagen. 
And I would ask people, what are your big concerns around here? And it became pretty clear that uh, in the smaller towns and the rural places, people were basically saying to me, we don't get our fair share. We don't get our fair share of attention from you all down in Madison and Milwaukee. We don't get our fair share of resources, meaning there's a, there was a perception that all the taxpayer money went to Madison or Milwaukee and they didn't get they didn't see it in return, even though they felt like they were paying in a ton. And they also felt like they weren't getting their fair share of respect. So they'd say things like, you all think we're a bunch of country bumpkins and, you know, we don't we're not educated and we don't know what's what. And um, part of my painting a picture should be that while they're telling me all this, they're often telling me through jokes and they're kind of uh, joking with me, kidding me. They were super welcoming to me, but my presence, you know, brought pretty quickly to the surface the, this sense that Madison thinks it knows it all. You all come out here, tell us what to do, and you don't listen to us in return. Mm -hmm. So generally, that's what it sounded like. It was a little different every place I went, but that was a very common theme. It really surprised me. I naively, growing up in the, in the Milwaukee suburbs or just beyond, uh, didn't really know that existed. Uh -huh. Why do you think this like rural political consciousness and resentment of the liberal elite was ignored as an important trend for so long? I know obviously you in writing this book were not ignoring it. Um, and I know some journalists like Sarah Kenzier who wrote Flyover Country have also been talking about these trends for a while. So why are we seemingly ignoring its importance until now? Yeah, great question. Well, on the one hand, you might say there's always been a rural versus urban divide ever since human beings were creating things called cities, right? There's people in and there's people out. But there's something different about it now, and we can come back to that later if you want to. But I think in general, it the rural versus urban divide is why it's been ignored for so long, right? Because we do live such segregated lives. Like if you're an urban person primarily, you've grown up in an urban, suburban place, you probably spend time in rural areas, but as a tourist, right? You drive through, you appreciate their beauty, you go for vacation, and you, that's so different than actually living with people and knowing what their challenges are and hearing what their concerns are. So that's part of it, just basic residential segregation in the way we live our lives. But I think also the the media industry has a lot to do with it too that so much of our popular culture and news media is produced in cities especially on the coasts right and that too is a kind of segregation where sure there are reporters who go to small towns and rural places to see what's going on report on what's going on but i I don't know this for sure, but I would say a whole heck of a lot more of that has gone on since the 2016 presidential election than before. And you don't notice what you don't see, right? So there just weren't people on the ground in these places, mm -hmm. not many, actually paying attention to what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, so you spent years writing this book. Was the resentment growing as you researched? Um, and what were some of the factors, if so, that, that caused it to build up? Yeah, I don't know if it increased, maybe. But when I first started going around in 2007, even then there was lots of resentment towards public employees in particular. And so, again, my presence, I mean, they didn't create these attitudes 
when I walked in the door. Like the way they started talking about things, it was clear this was a common theme that came up in their coffee clutches. But my presence as an employee of the flagship public university in the state brought to the surface pretty quickly like, so Kathy, tell us about your health care, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or your pension, or how many classes do you teach? And pretty quickly the theme came out that, you know, public employees generally, this is a general perception, are these people who sit behind desks all day, or if they're professors, they're in the classroom maybe a couple hours a week. I don't know what they do the rest of the time, right? And there was this perception that public employees are lazy. They don't work very hard. They're certainly not working hard like we do, people who work with their bodies all day. And by the time we can retire, if we can retire, our bodies are so broken down, we can hardly enjoy it. And so those themes were around when when I started. But then when Scott Walker got elected and when he became governor in early 2011, one of the first few things he did was to propose this budget repair bill that now we call Act 10, um, which basically undercut the ability of most public employee unions to um, uh, do collective bargaining. And that that really generated a lot of talk about whether they were in favor of public employees or against public employees, and in particular, the divisions within families, because a lot of times you had people who were, say, the wife was a public school teacher, and the, and the, um, the, the husband was not in favor of um, all the money going to public employees. And so I don't know if the resentment actually grew, but I think there was more conversation around it when Act 10 arose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was watching an interview with you from just before the 2016 election, having just published your book. And with the kind of intimate research that you had been doing, it seems like you probably had a a pulse on some feelings that a lot of other people were unaware of. Did you have a sense of of what was to come in that election? I would like to say I was so smart that I knew Donald Trump would win, but I didn't. I, I was watching the polls like most people interested in public opinion, right? And I I really thought, uh, even going into election night, that Hillary Clinton was going to win. But I do have to say that at uh, my election eve party with a bunch of my friends, when it was pretty clear what was what the result was going to be, I think I was someone in the room who it, that was not surprised in a way. I mean, I was surprised because it wasn't what I expected, but it was sort of my reaction was like, Oh, right. Right. Yeah. You weren't this, you weren't baffled. Yeah. You had something to like yeah. something concrete to grab onto, whereas some people I know here at least, people were just yeah. bewildered and were like, Yeah, what just happened? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah, I one of the stories I like to tell is uh my daughter and I were at this election party and just watching, you know, on computers and televisions what was going on and and as it became clear, and really the, the thing that sticks in my mind is when the New York Times had that graph of, with the two lines showing the probability Clinton was going to win, the probability that Trump was going to win, and when those lines crossed and it was clear it's Trump, we, I said, we should go home. I need a good night's rest. Uh-huh. Um, and lo and behold, you know, the New York Times sent me an email at 10, 12 that evening saying, um, you know, uh, this is turning out to be a shocking election. Would you be interested in writing an opinion piece? And <laughs> so anyway, that's a long, long-winded answer to like, uh, I didn't see it coming, but 
um, yeah, it made sense. Yeah, and what once I it had, happened, people yeah. kind of grabbed onto your your book and yeah. what you had to say because it was definitely explanatory. Um, but I don't want to just focus on the election of Trump. I'm sure you get asked a lot about that. Uh, I'm just wondering what other implications you think come from your findings um, in terms of just like maybe our, our society or democracy yeah. and, and how that urban-rural divide and resentment, are there any other consequences for that? Yeah, and, and I would say they're kind of general things. Like one of the things that I re- I feel as though I really learned from doing that work was just that the the extent to which our democratic fiber, if you will, is broken, meaning there's so little listening going on across divides. I mean, we're more aware of divisions in our culture than in, in the recent past. And um, we're so tuned out from one another and so defensive and and people don't feel listened to by their government, um, by the media, and by other people. And so I think one of the implications for my work is that we have to find a better way of communicating with one another. I mean, the whole ball of wax from people to their government, people amongst each other, and people with their, their media system. That's a huge set of issues, but uh, people tune out because they don't they don't see relevance to their own lives. Mm. Yeah. Um, how has Wisconsin's governor, Scott Walker, succeeded in kind of exploiting that resentment as, as governor? Yeah. Well, if, if you're a supporter of Scott Walker, you might say he's finally a candidate who resonates with our concerns, right? And if you're not, you say... He's what explo- I just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's exploited it. And so either way... Um, whether it's strategic or, you know, is kind of genuine from his own perspective of the world, he has said things or tapped into that feeling of real Wisconsinites are folks who live in this broad geographic area in the state outside of Madison and Milwaukee. And there's all these places in the state that have been overlooked and not talked to. And so one way um, one way that he tapped into this initially was with a debate that was going on when he first ran for governor over a high-speed train line between Madison and Milwaukee. So Jim Doyle, the incumbent, a Democrat, not, I shouldn't say incumbent, but he was the, the, the sitting governor who was not running again, had accepted $810 million from the federal government to build this rail line. And Scott Walker, from the primaries through the general election, said, if I'm elected, I'm not going to take that money because that money is basically money that's going to serve those two areas. It's not going to fix roads in the rest of the state, and that's hard-earned taxpayer money that isn't actually going to help the people of the state of Wisconsin. So he sort of has, has pitted, you know, Milwaukee, Madison, against the rest of the state. And then you might say, well, but he was county executive of Milwaukee County mm-hmm. at the time. He used that to his advantage, too, to, by saying, I I have, I have, am Milwaukee County executive, so I know how to take on the Milwaukee machine. I have done it. I can do it as governor. Mm-hmm. With the election coming up in Wisconsin, uh, Tony Evers and, and Scott Walker, I won't ask for your your predictions necessarily for the election, but since you published the book, do you think there's been any change in Wisconsin that might, you know, affect the outcome of this election? Or 
Yeah, a little bit. I would say one is, I mean, Scott Walker was not a Trump supporter during the campaign, but during the presidential campaign, but um, he's been pretty supportive since President Trump has become president. And there's a, a lot of disenchantment with Trump, um, even among people, many people who voted for Donald Trump. Uh, I, I think there's a sense that many people feel they wish he were more presidential. And so some of that may be rubbing off on Scott Walker. But the other thing that has happened, too, is people, um, you know, they don't necessarily make a, a direct connection between campaign pledges and then what happens when someone's in office. But there is a lot of talk about the quality of roads in kind of uh, in small town rural Wisconsin because their roads are a big deal when you have to drive a lot for everything for work for to go to school to get your kids to school to go do shopping and people notice the quality of the roads. They also notice that jobs haven't come to their community. There's a lot of talk about a big Foxconn deal in the southeast corner of the state, which is supposedly going to bring in a lot of jobs, but not to the parts of the state that I was visiting, right, the, the, the parts beyond Madison and Milwaukee. And so there's a little bit of a sense, I think, of this, is not ne- this administration is not necessarily working out great for me Maybe it's time for a change. Mm-hmm. And it you know, varies depending on who you're talking to. But I, when I'm saying all this, I primarily have in mind the, the folks in the small towns that I spend time with. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Kathy, for coming on the My show. My pleasure. And, and talking Thank you. And I'm looking forward to your talk today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. Kathy Kramer is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her most recent book is The Politics of Resentment. She has increasingly become known as the woman who writes about resentment. She's also working on a new project. It's called the Local Voices Network, and it seeks to bridge the very divides she writes about. Learn more about that project, along with her other work, on our website, grinnell.edu podcast. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. Next time, we're talking sustainability. We'll have a story about the Grinnell College Garden, which is in its second year in its new location where it has produced over a 1,000 pounds of produce in back-to-back years, most of which goes to Grinnell's very own dining hall. We'll also talk with Heather Swan, a poet and lecturer from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, about honeybees and the threats facing them, which carry important consequences for food production. Until then, be good, Grinnellians. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski and Audioblocks. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu. Find us on Twitter with hashtag allthingsgrinnell, or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast, for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians. Grinnellians.